Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Jenny Sweet-Cushman. Prof. Jenny, thank you very much for being with us. It's greatly appreciated. We're meeting for the first time, but I already get a sense of books behind you, family photos behind you, awards probably behind you. It looks like there are a number, there's quite a number of those. But my my first question now that we're recording to you is to ask what's dynamizing you, troubling you, preoccupying you, interesting you right now? Sure. All of the above. Um, (laughs) I am an American political scientist. I focus on women in politics primarily. uh, And I probably don't have to say to anybody who's not living in a cave right now that I am very concerned about the state of American politics and the trajectory that it's on. Um, You know, our, our leaders are not where we need them to be um, to make sure that we remain a robust and healthy democracy. And that that's concerning me and it's concerning, you know, political scientists all over the world, I think. And if I could ask you about two women in leadership slash quasi-leadership positions now in U.S. politics, namely Kamala Harris and Nikki Haley, one the vice president, the other a candidate for the presidential nomination of the Republican Party. I say this because the plurality of our listeners are in the U.S. because that's where I live most of my life, but the majority is outside the U.S., so some context is is necessary possibly for some. What's your take on on them as public faces of women in politics, although Kamala seems to me to have been pushed a long way out of the limelight over the last four years? Yeah, well, I mean, a couple of things. So, I mean, first of all, just the fact that they are, you know, the highest profile women in politics uh, in the U.S. context right now, I think is actually a good sign for representation for, you know, the work that I do on role models is that, you know, to have an in-group role model who matches your identity is really valuable to citizens. Um, So seeing them having a high profile position um, in politics is progress. You know, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that there were no women of color um, in the, on the scene anywhere. Um, so that part I'm excited about. Um, however, kind of how that's going for them, maybe I'm not as excited about. You know, there's kind of this adage that we really like women in politics until they run for something. <laughs> and um, and then we <laughs> sour, right? Um, and I think of, you know, going back now, now many years, I guess, but when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she was the most popular politician in the country. She had like a 70% approval rating. And what changed from that point to her running for president was that she got ambitious. Um, and, you know, her approval rating dropped dramatically. Um, And I think you see the same thing happened to Kamala Harris. Um, There was a lot of enthusiasm and excitement around the first woman vice president. And and then as as soon as she was installed in office, then suddenly, you know, we're much more skeptical of her. And the Biden administration seems to have kept her out of the limelight, maybe intentionally for that reason. I think they briefed against her to the press corps from early on. I don't have inside information on that, but that's what it looked like to me. Yes, no, me too. And I I also don't have any inside information on that, but it it sure did seem that way. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, alternatively, Nikki Haley, uh, you know, she actually showed up in my data in in my book, Inspired Citizens, because there was a very small subset, but a subset of Republican Republicans in the general population that looked to her as a potential role model. Um, and now, you know, she just doesn't seem to be able to compete with the notoriety that Donald Trump has Um does that mean that there might be a place for her in the administration were he to be reelected? 
you know, maybe, um, you know, uh, it'll be interesting to see how he manages that because she does have a strong following from some very strategic people within the Republican Party, especially donors. Um, so I, I think there's lots to good, lots good to come from her in the future. Yeah. Though, does she then get elected and nobody wants her to be there <laughs> um, because now suddenly she's ambitious? So we'll, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. I was living in New York when Clinton stood to be a senator. And I think all of us who were interested in these things remember when she was essentially manhandled by the Republican candidate and the polls which in the northern part of the state have traditionally been Catholic-Republican, swung quite radically in her favour. So many women could recognise what was being done to her. Now, when Trump did similar things, though, verbally, that didn't occur, did it? There wasn't a swing of women voters behind her. I had always assumed that all these... Republican wives would go into the polling booth and secretly go against their deadbeat husbands and vote for Clinton. But I don't think they did. No, no. Is that to do with too much ambition in the way that you're suggesting? Do you think what's the secret of the the female Trump voter? Yeah, well, that's a really great question. Um, So, you know, explaining the Trump phenomenon, I think, is it's its own thing. And there's, there's truly a, a psychological thing going on there. And, and women have been pulled into the mix on that, you know, in, in much the same way that, that men have. Um, but there, there was this, this question that for years and years and years, our big, uh, you know, general survey on politics that that's done in the United States, the American national election studies had asked for years, like, if your preferred political party nominated a qualified woman, would you support her? And there was such high support for that that they actually stopped asking the question. Um, like, there's no point, there's no variation in this. Most people feel like if their party nominated someone, uh, that, that they would support them. Um, but then you actually saw when it came down to it that that it was, you know, there's people in the middle who don't necessarily identify with a political party, who, you know, start to feel like some of those sexist tropes were, were working on them, you know, like, we don't like how naggy she seems, you know, her voice bothers me, you know, these, these things that are like embedded in our sexist culture. Um, and it really didn't impact people who are loyal to a party, which, you know, we have really, really high levels of, um, you know, partisanship and commitment to party at this point. Um, But those people in the middle who could have gone either way were the ones that were, you know, they're not making decisions necessarily based on policy or, you know, loyalty to a party. It's these other things around the, the edges and especially negative things around the edges that are prone to move those folks. And that, you know, that's what what we saw happen. Yes, I do think that a lot of the discussion about U.S. politics in the bourgeois media fails to acknowledge how loyal voters are to the party. And, that you know, when people get frightened and they assume that Fox News is what most Republicans watch, it's not, never has been, never will be. You know, they watch NBC and ABC and CBS and Fox broadcast news and they watch uh, Telemundo and so on. But I think it's very important to make that point, and that's very, very helpful. Uh, you mentioned role models, and these are very, very significant concepts in your book, and you draw in your research on theories and experiments and other forms of knowledge generated by psychologists, social psychologists, political psychologists, political communications people, yada, yada. What's the story with role models? And if I might ask something personal, when you were growing up, did you have any? Do you have any now? Yeah, well, I I think, you know, the reason that I'm a political scientist today is because I I felt connected to political figures really early on. Um, You know, and I, I share these stories with my students that I remember being four years old 
four. Um, and my parents were watching election results and, you know, the, the bar for my preferred candidate, I'm four, it was not going up as high as the bar for the lesser preferred candidate. Um, and I remember being really devastated by that at four years old and, and, you know, being out in public and telling people that that the person that had been elected was not my president because I had very strong views at the time, apparently. At four. Uh, yeah, at four. Yeah. And I, it has not gotten, it has not lessened since. Um, <laughs> but then kind of in my early teens really started recognizing that there were no women representing me, representing anybody, you know, n- no seat at the table. Um, so I was to reveal my age here, 16 in 1992, which is often referred to as the year of the woman in the United States, because there was this um, move for more women running for office and more were elected um, to Congress at that point. And really, in retrospect, it wasn't that many. It was just suddenly there were, you know, four, <laughs> you know, um, and that that had a really profound impact on me. And, and have I have recognized the need for more diverse representation, you know, when you are such a diverse democracy, um, you know, to not reflect that diversity in the people who are representing us means we don't get decisions that reflect well the needs of our people um, and people don't feel represented, which deteriorates democracy. So, you know, that's a major concern. Um, And I think role models have a really, really important role to play in that democratic equation, both as people who are elected to represent us, but then also as people who serve as potential inspiration for people to feel good about the democracy. Um, And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that I'm interested in, in in the research that I'm doing and in the book, Drawing on, as you mentioned, a whole glut of research that's been done in social psychology and applied in almost every imaginable scenario, you know, in in higher education, you know, if if you have, you know, scientists who are reflective of their students, you know, the students are more successful um, because they have a role model to aspire to, you know, in, um, you know, the business world to have mentors, people who look like you and um, can can help guide you and inspire you is, is valuable. Um, and so psychology has looked at role models in just about every imaginable dom- domain. Um, but 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 why should politics be different? So that was kind of the question that I was looking at because I wanted to know, you know, do we have role models? Do people recognize American politicians as potential role models? And then what, if they do or do not, what, what is the sort of impact on their citizenship by, by recognizing someone and having someone that inspires them? And what would be the intersection of party loyalty that we adumbrated earlier, policies and personalities or, or role models? How would you weight those three elements? Obviously, there can be other ones like you know, political crisis, economic crisis. One thinks of the importance of economic crisis in 2008 to that election, for instance. One thinks of the self-engendered crisis of war in the 2004 election. But putting those aside for the moment, what, what for you is the sort of magic formula between role model, party, and policy? Yeah, so... um Probably to no surprise, people are extremely unlikely to recognize someone as a role model outside of their own, you know, ideology. Um, and so people are looking to to role models who are who are um, co-partisans. Um, and um, that particularly for uh, for. Republican women presents a challenge because there are so few elected Republican women that they're kind of left without anybody to identify with. Um, and of course, there are other challenges, you know, for um, 
you know, black men, for instance, who uh, there are, you know, beyond Barack Obama, you know, who, who do they look to? Um, and now that Barack Obama is retired um, and, and is just a citizen like the rest of us, um, you know, they may maintain that connection to Barack Obama, but he's not usually actively inspiring anybody as, as kind of the tradition of former U.S. presidents. Um, so, uh, and really, it's a lot about personality. So co-partisans and then so- something with their personality identity that that people connect to. So um, there wasn't a whole lot of variation around the kinds of traits that people were looking for in their role models, uh, you know, men, women, people of color, whites, uh, different religions, everybody's kind of looking for a charismatic, you know, inspiring kind of leader that, that is, you know, strong, um, but, but also caring kinds of things. And that, you know, that that's what you might expect. Like, this is the type of person that you're going to look up to. And it's done within the frame, nonetheless, of partisanship. Yes, very little. So if for some folks, if they if they kind of were more retrospective about things, you know, there were there were maybe some Republicans who thought of like JFK as having been a a, a role model for them. Or there were Democrats who thought of Abraham Lincoln, who was a Republican. Um, so if they were using more historical examples, those were pretty rare. Um, but Sometimes there was some crossover, but I, I want to say it was like in the, you know, well over 90% of people mm. were choosing mm. a co-person um, as their role model. And as you say, there remain very few Republican women in the national legislature. Looking back at history, the expression founding fathers nowadays can be changed to founding parents, but that's a nice uh a nice new expression that I happen to prefer, but it's less descriptive. Mm-hmm. And it's pretty obvious that the U.S. Constitution was enacted in the interests of white property owning, including human being owning men. And yet it has a mythical status in the U.S. and not just amongst the originalists, amongst the Supremes, not just the people associated with a sort of Madisonian interpretation of the Constitution, which is to say, uh, for people not interested in these things or outside the country, perhaps an interpretation that does not wish to connect the Constitution to current social relations. What's your take on the significance of the masculine nature of the founding parents? Does it matter today? Yeah, well, I, I, it, this is something I challenge my students to think a, a lot about, actually, because, um, you know, part of our socialization as Americans, um, and I actually think this probably seeps into the rest of the world, too, given our, our, <laughs> our dominance in everything, um, is that the Constitution's infa- infallible, that, you know, the divine inspiration of these, as you point out, white property owning, wealthy, educated men, um, near, nearly 250 years ago, um, that they somehow were, were, you know, omnipotent and could anticipate all of our needs and changes. Um, and the absurdity of that, in my view, is, is damaging us. Um, and so, you know, that not that we don't need, you know, a system of laws and a structure that is constitutional and um, can guide us. But, um, you know, other countries don't rely on a, their constitution the way that we do, or they treat their constitution a different way. You know, we, we don't include much in the way of policy in our constitution. And lots of other countries have guaranteed education in their constitution uh, or have guaranteed clean air, clean water in their constitution um, or talk about workers' rights in their constitution. Lots of these things that are really relevant to society today that we we completely ignore and rely on court interpretation. And it it's 
it's not the greatest way to govern people. I just, <laughs> from a pragmatic perspective, it's just not the best way to govern. So uh, I don't know what the answer is. Like, I, I wouldn't be opposed to like throwing the whole thing out and writing something that works for, you know, contemporary society, but that process, what that would look like, I, we're not in a position to be even able to do it. So I'm also struck by how little people know about the constitution. When I was studying for the citizenship test, 15 years ago, I would go around and ask people in the street or people I know how many amendments to the Constitution there were. This was one of the things you had to know the answer to. And no one who was not a U.S. political scientist or an attorney knew, not a single native-born U.S. person, regardless of level of education, and it wasn't a random poll, it was just people I met, had a clue had a clue, had the foggiest idea. And I Let was, alone what's in any of those those amendments, for sure. Like, and the pretty and good part well, the third and the second, they kind of vaguely know what's in those two. But I, <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't know until I studied for the test. And I should say the test had answers that were incorrect on numerous topics. So it's not as though... <laughs> People writing the test don't even know, right? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Not surprised and by that. My immigration attorney, when I said to him, you know, this is outrageous. It says the, here are two errors, obvious errors in the test. He said, Toby, shut up. Do you want to become a citizen or not? And I said, I do. <laughs> However. That's very American to me. It's <laughs> not <laughs> <laughs> what's real. It's what we think is real. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know what? The one that really gets me on that is the way people throw around our First Amendment protections. Um, you know, well, I have freedom of speech. Um, and there, there isn't an understanding of, of what that actually means, as if, like, social media can't censor you. You know, privately owned companies can censor you all they want. That's not what our First Amendment does. Um, but... It, it people don't understand what it means and they think that it entitles them to just say whatever they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. And that that's just not the case. Um, so, you know, I'm always a little skeptical, skeptical of anybody who is, you know, citing the constitution <laughs> to defend their actions or words because, um, you know, okay. Have you read it? I don't know. Not don't know. recently. Yeah. So Prof, um, Focusing on a, a gendered issue of importance, namely the right to reproduction, the question mm-hmm. of abortion in the United States, and the recent overturning of the Roe versus Wade decision from 1973 in the Supreme Court, which is one of those interesting decisions, important in lots of ways, but particularly interesting because it operated with an implied power that would grant people privacy rights mm-hmm. that was implied in the constitution without being exactly explicit. And there are all kinds of complications surrounding that implied right to privacy. But that was the basis on which right. Roe Wade was decided, providing women with limited but but rights to uh, termination services. Mm-hmm. And the Democrats failed to enact anything to secure this during their long years of dominance of the House and the Senate. So more shame there. Yes. But regardless of that, and regardless of their spineless, you know, endorsement of endless reactionary male judges to join the Supremes, the fact is what was in a sense, settled judicial agreement has been overturned and it became a very important issue in the midterm elections in 2022, which would normally in the world of the last 50 years have seen a massive turn to the Republicans, but only saw a slender majority in the House and a continued minority status, although a strong one in the Senate. And for a lot of people, the issue that Biden's going to jump onto, if you can say jump of any of his physical motions <laughs> in the next few months, is going to be the right to choose. I've just spoken a lot about that, but your opinion and your knowledge matter 
much more than mine. What's your take on this, on its importance for politics in general and what role it will play in the coming months? Yeah, so I have kind of mixed feelings um, on on how this is all unfolding. I, I, on one hand, I think you're exactly right that, you know, shame on the Democrats for not prioritizing, codifying Roe versus Wade into federal law um, across, you know, many, many times where they would have had an opportunity to, you know, Barack Obama in his first term had a filibuster-proof Senate um, and really squandered that opportunity, not just on this issue, but lots of them. Um, and so it was very naive, especially given the tenuous framework that that Roe was built on, this idea of privacy being pulled from you know, three or four different places in the Constitution to kind of give this sense. Um, it was never something that 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 supporters of reproductive choice should have felt confident in. Um, but there was this complacency because it had not been thoroughly challenged in a way. And I think, you know, the American public um, you know, just wasn't really paying attention to it. You know, it had, this was a right that people took for granted until it disappeared. And so, you know, where I'm a little bit conflicted is I'm actually encouraged by the way that it has reignited an interest in politics and activism, especially among young people. Um, and that, you know, turnout for, you know, our youngest voters was record highs in the midterms, which, you know, that that is a very challenging voting block to, uh, to mobilize. Um, and so I, I'm encouraged by seeing that. Um, you know, I, I think there's some concern because of the state by state framework that it did leave in place yeah. at the states where it, it matters most to the presidential election are states where there have they've actually strengthened some of the reproductive rights protections. And so, you know, a lot of folks might not feel that same threat and, and be encouraged then to participate in 2024, um, whereas in states where those rights have been eliminated or severely hampered, you know, the the margins of victory in those states are, are not such that it, it could even matter all that much if it encouraged participation, um, just the screwy way that we elect presidents in this country. Um, and so I think you're going to see it's a winning issue for sure for Biden, um, but the voting blocks for whom it is most important are really disengaged. Um, and I, I don't know that he's going to be able to, you know, pull people out under the threat of if you, if you, you know, allow Trump to be reelected, you know, there will be a national ban. And, and I don't honestly know if, if most Republicans have a taste for that, given the polling um, on abortion right now is, you know, even even a majority of Republicans do not support further restrictions. So um, this is, you know, tyranny of the minority to some degree. You know, it's it's a very small percentage of people who think that abortion should be illegal in, in all conditions. Um, and yet those are the ones that are are in the positions to make decisions um, at this point. So, you know, it's it's a strange time for sure. I think something similar is happening in Britain with the immigration debate, where it's a deeply felt question for lots of xenophobic racists, but there aren't that many of them. The thing is, they have a hold on the government and on major sections thereof. So uh, what would be your strategy for trying to increase the number and the influence of women in U.S. politics, is that something that has to start at the local level, the municipal level, or is it something where we need initiatives that the political parties generate in a significant way at statewide and federal levels? Yeah, I mean, all of the above. Um, you know, it, one issue for sure is that the the political pipeline to higher level office it's kind of still being developed. I mean, 
you look at our U.S. Senate and, you know, what's the average age there now? Like 140, I think, <laughs> um, you know, and that that's because these folks started their political career so long ago and have been building up. And now they have this, you know, this stranglehold on power. Um, and, you know, when they were building these careers, women didn't do these things. Um, so, you know, there, there's a wall there that, that women need to start building careers and, and, you know, ultimately can start pushing into those spaces. Um, you know, I'm, I'm in Pennsylvania. Um, I live in Pittsburgh and, uh, you know, Pennsylvania has never had a woman U.S. Senator. We've never had a woman governor. Um, and have had very few members of the House of Representatives even. Um, but there are so many women that are now running for office. And, you know, we have now the mayor of Philadelphia is a woman, the first woman elected in Philadelphia. Our county executive here in Pittsburgh is a woman. Um, we've got the a record number of women in the House of Representatives right now. The first uh, woman of color in the House of Representatives. So that pipeline is starting to develop, and I fully anticipate that there will be women running you know, for U.S. Senate and for the governor's office uh, and successfully in the next few election cycles mm. because that pipeline is starting to build. You know, ultimately, when we, we often say in the biz, when women run, women win because there isn't like within the party, it's that same idea that, you know, if your party ran a woman for president, would you support them? People do. If the party nominates a woman for whatever office, if that's the person that's on the ticket for your party, you know, in, in general, people are supportive of, of that. So we just need the women to run. Um, and so breaking down barriers to women's candidacies is where we're at. And some of those are structural, you know, we, we need better fundraising, we need better support. We need better recruitment for those things. Uh, but then we also need to work on some of the individual level factors, like um, how we're socializing women to think about political leadership. Are, are Do they see the role models? Um, do they know that this is a thing that women can do and that women are good at and that women are successful at? Or do they feel like, why would I subject myself to that? Mm -hmm. um, and that socialization process starts when they're really young and you know, little girls are less interested in politics than boys are. And, you know, that get that gap gets bigger um, the older that they, they get. And so, you know, we be, need to be working on that and providing role models and talking to, you know, our, our little girls about their position in our democracy um, in the same way that we talk to boys about it, too. So, you know, it's a lot of different things. I always say that, you know, there is no one smoking gun on why women are underrepresented. Um, but, you know, tackling it from the structural recruitment side of things, but then also, you know, how we're how we're built as a society to socialize boys and girls differently. You know, we need to be thinking about those things as well. And what about the role of political parties themselves in this? What should the two major political parties, I mean, regrettably, other parties that I affiliate with more easily don't matter. It's a truly bipartisan system or bi bi bifocal system. What sh could and should they be doing? And are there examples of instances where the political parties are sort of doing the right thing themselves? Yeah. So, I mean, one example there is, um, you know, the Democratic Party has um, said that like delegates to our, our national conventions that are held every four years, um, that, you know, there there has to be um, gender parity and representation to the conventions. Now, you know, the, the conventions are mostly a dog and pony show. So like, is there actual power associated with with doing something like that? And it's more symbolic. Um, but so that decision was made in the in the 1960s, you know, around civil rights. Um, it, you know, lots of political parties internationally have adopted either formally, legally, informally quota systems where a certain number of the candidates need to be you know, women or people of color or or, or whatever. And um, that 
kind of is antithetical, you know, to like our constitutional ideals of freedom and, and, and even people who really genuinely want to improve the diversity of our representation are kind of like, eh, that, that doesn't seem like it's a good fit for the United States. So I don't, I don't anticipate that there would be a formal quota system at any level and in any place in the United States. Um, I will say that, you know, when we, when we say these things, if you look at, like, look at a picture of, you know, who represents the Democratic Party in Congress, and then look at a picture of who represents the Republican Party in Congress, and you're going to see two very different parties. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it's really unfortunate that, you know, the Republican Party has has continued to be mostly, you know, wealthy, educated, older white men, because that that puts the party at a really big disadvantage when they're trying to you know represent a republican party that is not necessarily all of those things if they want to be pulling in people of color if they want women to feel represented in their party um to to make sure that they look like the people that they're representing is just like the easiest way to do that um mm-hmm. and so when i see that republican women don't feel like they have role models the same way as Democratic women or, or anybody else in the population, for that matter, I draw a direct line to the fact that the Republican Party just doesn't reflect the people that it's trying to represent. Mm-hmm. The Democratic Party's done a much better job of that. You know, there are plenty of people of color. You know, the the House um, majority leader is a black man now. You know, Nancy Pelosi was the Speaker of the House. Um, there's pretty diverse representation that way, and as such. You know, the, the coalition for the Democratic Party is much more diverse. It's also a lot harder to herd those cats <laughs> than it is um, to, you know, keep people who are very similarly minded in line. But So it, it creates a challenge for the Democratic Party, but it's also one that a pluralistic society needs to take on if it's going to be successful as a democracy. When taken syphologically, in policy terms, I have some agreement with Trump's line from the last decade, which is African-American voters need not be so loyal to the Democrats because the Democrats let them down all the time. And it seems to me that apart from the role model issue and the real demography of the country needing to explain or create the real demography of the legislature, the Democratic Party doesn't really give a toss about working people. It doesn't really give a toss about minorities. It's interested in power and a different fraction of a middle-class elite from the Republican one. I mean, I, I'm so frustrated by its abject failure to do anything other than have these people as icons yeah, well, I mean, this is the the struggle of a two party system. Is oh, you know, okay. That, Say some that, more about that. Tell us more about that. Yeah, I mean, I, there isn't an opportunity to really distinguish a party, um, you know, a, along these different policy interests, because when you're trying to be the big tent party, you kind of have to go to where the median voter is. Um, and this is just an unfortunate circumstance of like, if you want to, you can't accomplish anything if you don't win, win elections and you can't win elections without in the United States, at least moving to the center. Um, and that you're absolutely right that nationally, there's been such a myopic obsession with that. But, then, but I don't I don't know what the alternative is, because if they move from that, can they win elections that way? I, mean, I do think that there is an argument that the American public, especially younger voters, are moving farther left. And could the party be successful if it did, too? Um, but but taking that leap, especially when all of the playbooks were written by octogenarians who are still running the party, um, is is a really difficult proposition for the Democrats. Um, and so I would I would push back a little bit to say that there are states, there are certainly local governments where, um, you know, that 
that more progressive Democratic Party exists and they are focusing on policy. Um, of course, all we pay attention to in the United States is our national politics. So nobody really knows that. But, um, you know, there are yeah. there are really progressive things that are happening in local governments um, and even in some states. Oh, absolutely. And there and there are governors that are progressive. And one of the things I try to explain to people who think they understand the U.S., having been a journalist there for 18 months or having visited there or having watched Friends a lot, is that there are tens of millions of really progressive people in the United States. And there is a feminist majority. Um, so I, I do. I think your point is well taken. Um Prof, I have two more questions for you. And then to conclude, I'd like to throw it to you. Should there be things you want to subtract from, perhaps, or add <laughs> to what we've discussed? And maybe do a little more product placement of this terrific book. Yeah? Thank you. Yeah, great. So my first question is to ask you about Pennsylvania, because, again, for people outside the U.S. or even for those inside it, it's really at least two states, right? Mm -hmm. It's a rural and quasi-industrial, lapsed industrial state. It's a Republican state and a Democrat state. It's got Pittsburgh and Philly that are only going to vote one way. And then it's got the West that's not. But it's a, it is one of the big swing states. Yes. What's your take on gender in that context, given that you've already explained to us that more women are rising up through the system in the state, at least in the big cities. Yeah, so I mean, we are, there's a joke, and there's different variations on this joke that um, uh, that you know Pennsylvania is Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, with Kentucky in between. Um, <laughs> some people say Alabama, but you know it's in there somewhere. Uh, uh, and remember, uh, Kentucky stayed with the Union in the Civil War. Well, so maybe Kentucky is the better choice there, for sure. So, um, well, and it's very true. You know, like if you looked at a map of like our election results, you'd see these two br big bright spots on either side of the state, and then everything else is red um, because that that is how um, we voted. And um, you know, there there's also though this kind of traditional culture in Pennsylvania, um, that even within the, especially on the Western side of the state where, where Pittsburgh is, you know, the, there is a progressiveness, but like apprehension about change, I would, I would say. Um, and so it's kind of slowed down our pace. You know, you look at states like maybe like Colorado that, they, that has really moved much more progressively, much yeah. more quickly. Yeah. Um, because it's, you know, they don't have that same sort of, you know, aversion to change um, that, you, that you find in the culture um, in Pennsylvania. Um, mm -hmm. But it has positioned us as like the swing state of all swing states and yeah. we're ground zero. Um, you know, a lot of times if you look at um, a lot of the folks who participated in the um, January 6th insurrection, um, the largest percentage of those who faced charges were from Pennsylvania. Um, now we're we're close. I was um, going to say not so hard to get to DC. <laughs> not at all, um, uh, especially from some of those red areas. You know, really close. Um, but you know, there 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 was you know very much um, pushback on the election results in 2020 um, by you know lots of folks here. Lots of folks in our state legislature were a part of that as well. Um, so it's a um, it's an interesting place during uh, presidential elections, for sure. Um, and it's and got a lot of votes. It, it has a lot of votes. It's not um, state, but it matters in the election. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. Um, and it, it's all about it's all about turnout. I mean, I I would argue actually those those blue dots of of Democratic <laughs> voters are actually like profoundly larger uh, cumulatively than uh, the Republican voters in the state, but it's a lot harder to get them to turn out. So, um, and, you know, when there's, you know, a sense of being disaffected or, you know, not really interested in the, another Biden presidency, 
maybe not happy with how the last, you know, couple of years have gone economically, for example, with inflation and, um, you know, support for, for Israel, you know, we have a large Jewish population. Um, you know, these are, these are things that might just have voters staying home. Um, and so I, I think the biggest thing that I always see in the media, um, and this is like a broad statement is that, you know, they talk about, you know, will, this state supports this candidate. And it it's not so, it, it's more a question of turnout because there are almost always more democratic voters in these places, but just they turn out at lower rates. So um, there's a real challenge. And it, you know, uh, the West side of the state turned out at, in higher numbers in 2020 than the East side of the state. And that's an interesting phenomenon because Philadelphia has way more voters, um, but they don't turn out uh, as reliably. Um, and that's going to be a challenge uh, for, for Biden. Um, you know, he loves the state. He's originally from Pennsylvania. Um, I was going to say a true son of a state, but who defected to the credit card money. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but you know, I mean, Delaware is so tiny. Isn't it really just like, you know, uh, an annex, uh, over there or something, you know, nobody seems to be too bothered by that. It's it's Visa, MasterCard and Biden, I think. Yeah, that's it. That's all it is. And they have some bitches. That's, that's it. <laughs> I think we've both lost the state. So yeah. Beth, one, one more question from me. And then I, uh, as I say, I'd love to throw it to you, lest there be things you'd like to say further about the book. So, you're at the American Political Science Association annual meeting. God help you. And <laughs> right. you're signing copies of the book. There are thousands of young women in particular lined up to buy yes. the book or get you to sign. And there's a 24-year-old, 25-year-old gay white guy mm-hmm. who comes to you and says, Prof, I've read the book. I love it. I want to do a PhD in political science, and I want the eventual dissertation to be about queerness in Congress and role models. What are you going to say to that young man about how he might go about it and what the future is for the queer role model in Congress? Because we've talked a bit about race and a fair bit about gender. We haven't touched much on the sexuality issue, which it seems to me is probably on the rise, but maybe not. Yeah. So is this young guy, he's at the, the meeting. What are you going to say to him? Well, I think that sounds like a great idea, young man. <laughs> um, you know, where, and I, I talk about this with my students too, that because a lot of times, you know, the material that I'm presenting to them, um, you know, it does not have a lot of queer representation because we are only just at the point where, um, we really can, e- we even have a, a critical mass of women to be able to study empirically. Um, and so when you're talking about, you know, fewer than 10, you know, openly queer members of, of Congress, and maybe it's more than that, but it's not much more than that, you know, to have a sample size large enough to like generalize to the queer population you just you can't, you can't do that. So we're 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 moving towards a critical mass where if you're collecting all of the cases of people who are are, are serving uh, as openly gay representation, um, you can start putting together a study to look at that. Um, you know, uh, it, like the trans population, for example, there I think there are only two in the whole country who are openly trans and serving. You know, how do you study that in a way that you're able to to generalize? Mm -hmm. Um, And and then, you know, for the longest time, I mean, it's only just so very recently in our history. It's not that there weren't LGBT people in politics. It's that they weren't openly um, out. Um, And so, like, how how do you identify those folks uh, to be able to study them? So I I think we are right on the edge of opening up the the world of political science to a whole bunch of additional questions. Uh, and I'm excited, especially for young people to be able to, to, to read and learn about those things. 
because this is the world that they're inheriting. And, you know, if we look at the the data, young people are much more likely to identify as queer. And so, you know, let them see themselves as represented in our academic research. So I, I think that's a very exciting endeavor that, that, that this hypothetical young man might be. <laughs> I don't know why I made him white and gay. I just... For some reason, I had this image of this figure lining up with all these gals getting your signature and there not being as many boys lining up to get your signature. <laughs> uh, the more unbelievable part might be the people lining up. <laughs> Regardless of gender or sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Gary Kramer at Temple will set it up. Don't worry. Uh, well, I'm excited. I'm excited. <laughs> it's in Philadelphia, so I'll be there. Right. Um, so, uh, Prof. Jenny, I'm, I'm wondering if there are things to conclude with that you'd like to add to what we've discussed. Yeah, so a, a couple of things. Um, just, you know, role models are a really kind of accessible idea for people. You know, it, you know whether you have a political role model or not, you probably have a thought about that idea. Um, and something that I've found that I don't think that we really understood and, and we're only just now starting to understand is that people who have political role models, who, who identify with someone um, in politics that they consider a role model are fundamentally different citizens than people who don't. Um, and some of those things are, are good, like they have more trust in government, they feel more efficacious about their ability to influence government, um, they're more likely to vote, though and participate, those are all like normatively good things. Um, but then they're also in this contemporary political environment, more likely to report that they've experienced or witnessed political aggression. They're more likely to report that they would be open to the idea of political violence to, you know, reinforce their ideals. Um, and that's of concern. Um, and so I think we really need to be thinking about um, you know, knowing that that role model effects are real and have the potential to impact people, um, who our role models are. Um, you know, we need more diverse role models. Um, we need better quality role models. And we as a society need to think about how we are positioning people as role models, whether it's in our political campaigns and candidates being cognizant of the fact that they may be influencing people um, or, you know, educators, uh, you know, starting with really young kids, presenting them with people who are doing good work in the community so that they can see that public service is a good thing and can be a positive, uh, you know, influence on their lives. And um, I don't think we're doing those things maybe in the right way. And certainly at, at as contentious as politics is right now, we're maybe pushing away from those things um, because of how contentious it is. Um, and that that can only serve mm -hmm. to further divide us um, and further disillusion us from politics. Um, so, you know, as a society, we need to be thinking about how we use our role models and potential role models need to be thinking about, you know, how they're presenting themselves and their rhetoric um, because it's, a, it's an important obligation. Well, Prof, thank you so much. The book is fantastic, and you've been inspirational not just on the page but in this conversation. I, I thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate you having me.